0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Shadow Talk, your weekly cybersecurity news and threat intelligence podcast brought to you by the ReliaQuest Threat Research Team. My name is Ivan, and I'm going to be your host today. And this week, I'm going to be joined by two of my colleagues. First, we have Brendan, uh, the Director of Threat Research. Uh, how are you doing, Brendan, and getting ready for your holiday weekend?
1: Yeah, thanks, Ivan. Uh, I'm doing great. It's uh, also great to be back on the pod. It's been quite a while for me, but uh, looking forward to uh, some time off and celebrating Thanksgiving with family. But yeah, looking forward to today's episode. Yeah,
0: for sure. Uh, welcome. And uh, from over in Las Vegas, we have Colin, uh, one of our lead threat hunters. Uh, everything going well, Colin?
2: Yep, pretty well over here. Getting a little finally cooling off in Vegas, so uh, uh, the temperature change has been nice. But yeah, same. It's been a while since I've been on the podcast with everything going on. So glad to have, glad to be back. I feel like every
1: time that we have colin or someone on from vegas they're always talking about the weather uh i've always picked that way <laughs> are so uh i guess the the vegas weather is, is
2: is a hot take out there yeah 120 in the summer we we look for the weather to cool down at all <laughs> cool nights are nice
0: yeah that's that's even harder than texas um yeah yeah well thanks colin and welcome so today we have a lot of interesting topics that we're going to discuss uh, we're going to be talking about the ransomware group that filed a complaint with the SEC for a victim, uh, a case study that we just conducted at ReliQuest on an attack by Spider, And then we're going to be finishing with a discussion on an attack that was labeled the largest ever cyber attack on Danish critical infrastructure. So we're going to be starting with the first topic. Uh, and you probably heard about this one because it's been all over the news. But uh, a ransomware group called V. And uh, they used a very unique tactic to extort the victim last week. They filed a complaint with the SEC, I guess one of their victims, uh, which is something that we have never seen before. Uh, so to go over the full story, I kind of want to give you guys a timeline of the, the events. Uh, the group, they claim to have conducted uh, the attack targeting a company called Meridian Link on November 7th, 2023. And then about a week later, uh, on November 15th, Alpha v, they posted this victim on their data leakage website. And then a day later, uh, they made a new post claiming that they had reported this victim to the SEC for failing to report the data breach, as mandated by the new SEC rules. And uh, they also provided screenshots of the proof of this SEC complaint. And this is a very unique and interesting extortion tactic. But it's actually not something that it's not something new per se. Uh, seeing Alpha V doing unique extortion tactics. Uh, if you remember back to 2022. Uh, the group actually attempted to extort victims by using clear web clone domains. So they basically took a legitimate website of the victim, they cloned it exactly, and then they began leaking data on it. And also in June of 2022, the group attempted a very similar tactic by creating an impersonating domain uh, on the clear web and leaking data for the victim. So these are tactics that have since been copied by other ransomware groups. Uh, anyway, I have a question to the both of you. What are your thoughts on this new extortion tactic used by Alpha V? And is this something that maybe other groups, other ransomware groups, are going to attempt to copy? And what could this mean for the future of the ransomware threat landscape?
1: Yeah, I could take a stab at that first. I I'm not sure really what to think of this uh, technique because I feel as though it was employed to apply some additional layer of extortion but when you think about it in this lens as they are essentially just speeding up the time in which they would have to report the filing they obviously as a publicly traded organization if they they're mandated to now report that in i believe four days applying the pressure to essentially say hey we're going to disclose it to the sec before you i'm not sure what that necessarily does for the group as regardless of the fact they're still have they're still going to have to file um so it's it's quite interesting to me i'm not sure necessarily if they're trying to use it as an extortion technique because in my eyes it again the filing still has to be done it's just the speed at which they do it uh so it is interesting but colin i'm interested to see if you, you feel otherwise or, or your take rather on the on the topic.
2: I mean I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, it's an interesting tactic that doesn't really do much from the extortion perspective other than sort of name and shame. Granted, you know, Alpha V has always been about like their organization in general is relatively young um, and their operators are relatively young. so they've often done campaigns where they're public naming shaming to sort of troll in a way. Um, but I think the biggest thing here is the low effort required to do this uh, it's sort of one of those why not um, if they can and they find success uh, it's you know it's <laughs> it's a quick email to the SEC to say hey look we've compromised this org um, so I think the, the low effort to execute uh, might make it really really more common it's just gonna whether it actually has any impact I, I don't really see it impacting the actual extortion going on
0: yeah, it's an interesting one. I feel like yeah, it adds a small little layer of pressure on victims. But at the same time, like you said, they still have to file anyway. So in a way, it's saving them the trouble of having to do it themselves. Uh, but we'll see how that goes and if any other ransomware groups attempt to do similar things. Uh, so the next topic that I want to discuss today is a threat spotlight report that ReliaQuest just published today uh, covering a threat group called uh, Scattered Spider. And uh, if you don't know who Scattered Spider is, they are a cybercrime group they, and they have been known to target very large enterprises across many sectors and geographies. And recently, they have be, uh, been collaborating with the Alpha V ransomware. There have been a lot of reports about that collaboration. And that means that a lot of Scattered Spider attacks now are resulting in data theft and ransomware infections. So, as I mentioned before, uh, Reliquest, we just published a spotlight report covering this our analysis on an attack by scatter spider and uh, Brendan you contributed a little bit to that report could you tell us what happened and how did how did we discover this attack and what was the group trying to achieve
1: yeah absolutely so as you had mentioned Ivan this was an, an intrusion uh, that our threat hunting team became engaged with um, we've been experimenting with retroactive IOC hunting in an automated fashion, uh, knowing that these, these indicators are, are typically very volatile and, and performing this manually is, is really not worth, uh, the effort there. So in, in efforts to kind of gain the benefit of, of the, of what this, this type of hunt would, can produce, we, we had some indicators alongside, you know, this particular infrastructure that we uncovered, but that automated threat hunt essentially provided us uh, a little trail uh, in which we identified infrastructure that had previously been attributed to the Scattered Spider group. And from there, um, taking that and moving further into analysis, we uncovered uh, an active in- intrusion or an intrusion that had taken place relatively in the in the last couple weeks or so, um, at the time in which we started looking into this. Um, so after, uh, a thorough analysis that the team had put on and, and, collaboration with our customer, uh, we, we started to put together a story, which is what you'll find in the actual, uh, report that is now live on the site. Uh, and this intrusion, um, it started out with a compromise of it administrator, uh, via the octa, uh, via their octa integration. So with clarity from our our, our customer following our our analysis, it appears as though the threat actor actually called into their help desk um, to reset the credentials for a uh, IT administrator. Following the success of that, the threat actor employed a multi-factor authentication fatigue attack, an MFA, uh, MFA fatigue attack. That's essentially just bombing and pushing a bunch of notifications to prompt the actual user to uh, accept the push notification. From there, they uh, quickly registered a new MFA device uh, and they started about their their intrusion. Uh, this intrusion went for multiple days. Uh, there's a lot of notable things in this, but really is upon access to the, um, the Octa environment, the threat actor quickly moved to start doing some enumeration of, uh, the tenant. Uh, so any of the SAS applications that were tied to the it administrator, they started uh, investigating, interrogating, whether that was, you know, entra ID, uh, office 365 resources. And upon reviewing the Office 365 resources, we quickly identified that the threat actor was, was, was navigating and browsing documentation related to how their identity uh, access management tools were configured, uh, their BDI infrastructure, network topologies. And from there, we saw within an hour of the device registration and the initial compromise, the threat actor actually moving to their on-premise Citrix VDI environments where they then started to begin employing additional uh, techniques to accomplish their objective, which in this case was a ransomware deployment. So a lot to unpack there. Um, I'll save some of the the juicy stuff for you guys to, to review in the in the, the write-up. But yeah, that's just a quick TLDR on, on what had occurred.
0: Uh, That's a lot of interesting information, Brandon. Were there any novel or interesting TTPs that you guys observed when analyzing this attack?
1: Yeah, so I'd say just the ability for the group to weaponize their discovery so quickly. Uh, You know, on on a traditional on-premise type of attack, you're going to see the likes of you know domain enumeration and 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 looking for sensitive files in regards to like a traditional active directory environment but in this case again under an hour they quickly were able to utilize the certain documents that they were looking for in sharepoint to then pivot to a citrix environment like relatively quick so time to lateral movement being just under an hour um i wouldn't say that this is necessarily novel but i do kind of find it's interesting as it again kind of highlights the 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 speed in which these actors are able to move and and again weaponize what it is that they're getting access to so i i do think that was that was quite notable and 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 worthy um and and just the i think another call out too was um again not novel but i think it kind of shows the maturity of of the group uh you know they've had in their eyes great success with their compromises over the last year i'm not saying that this is the same group because we know uh the fbi and and federal law enforcement across the world shut down the lapsus group but you know what we saw that we kind of also identified and via reporting of uh this group um externally is their utilization of like not lolbins bins but just post-exploitation tools, and them actually just ingressing them from the likes of GitHub. Uh, So, you know, in Lapsus, there was a lot of uh, commentary and and documentation that, you know, they were using Bing and just going to GitHub and pulling down some tooling. Um, In this instance, we kind of saw similar things as well with them ingressing tools from the actual GitHub repos. So instead of staging it on some infrastructure in their control to then ingress it from there, uh, they're actually just going out to GitHub and grabbing this and pulling this tooling down. So quite interesting. Um, It's obviously was successful in this case. So I think it's something to definitely call out uh, from a detection standpoint and and even uh, a preventative measure and ensuring that, you know, executable file types uh powershell scripts or even just standalone portable executables making sure that organizations have controls to prevent any user of essentially pulling those down from the internet especially from those 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 repositories like github and GitLab.
2: i think i think it's a really good shout because people are so caught up oftentimes in the complexity and you know how these actors are Conducting these very sophisticated attacks, but a lot of the actual techniques they're using are low complexity, not sophisticated. Using what's there to just accomplish what they need to do without tipping their hand, and people are very caught up in, "No, oh, you know, I got to develop all these detect these complex detection criteria to correlate all this stuff." In reality, it's like no, you can detect a lot of it using simply like a list of known uh, exploitation tools on GitHub. For in this instance and look for traffic to those outside of your normal, you know, security team. So uh, I think it's a really, really good call out there.
0: Yeah. And a lot of these attacks, like Brendan mentioned, begin with social engineering. And that's also something you can't detect and just takes user awareness. Uh, Brendan, you mentioned some uh, uh, mitigations that companies can take preventing downloading uh, executable files and PowerShell files. What other advice would you have for organizations to protect themselves against a scattered matter?
1: Yeah, so obviously the the group in, employs social engineering primarily for initial access. And to your point earlier, Ivan, it's almost impossible to to detect with just telemetry, right? There's that human element of it. So in that note, help desk policies, uh, there needs to be some rigorous policy here for you know just how you utilize the help desk. So especially for like administrators in your environment. If, you know, someone's calling in for a password reset, like you should have policies in place as to how that's handled accordingly. So things like out-of-band communication, if I'm calling in uh, saying, hey, I'd like to reset my credentials. uh, I need to then use another out-of-band communication channel to verify that the user that is calling in is actually the user. So really tapping into the help desk policies, that's again something that I I feel is is really really needed here and it's not just necessarily for scattered spider but it's just good practice to begin with Um, and also just ensuring that you know in this case there was MFA uh, enabled on the account Uh, but the fatigue aspect there uh, that upon you know if your policy falls short that users are one trained up on not accepting push notifications that they are not recognized but then also having the telemetry available to detect that And that kind of leads me into the visibility aspects of things. You know, if there's one thing that you guys have probably gotten out of this podcast is we will preach and preach and preach and preach about visibility. Uh, A lot of the story that we were able to tell here came from cooperation with the the customer uh, during our analysis where we didn't have the visibility needed to kind of put together our story. It wasn't in the tooling that, you know, ReliQuest uh, is using to perform said detection, investigation response uh, criteria. So really ensuring that the likes of your your SaaS applications and how those are interrogated via like access to them, uh, downloads, um, your identity access service providers if you're logging those and the authentications that our users are using to gain access to the environment, um, endpoint telemetry, right? Everything is is an endpoint. Not everything can have an EDR solution on it, but where applicable, ensuring that you have great coverage via EDR and that that visibility is centrally located, that's all going to be able to provide you the ability to not only prevent but detect and investigate in a timely fashion. And as I called out earlier, you know that time to lateral movement being just one hour under one hour, you you really time is of the essence, and ensuring that you have all that working for you is only going to help you put the burden back on the adversary um so it's critical that you have um the the correct logging and visibility in place and i'd say finally um uh, a very old dated principle but the principle of least privilege it's it's something that again i feel is very often overlooked and you know, everything that I've, I've said from a recommendation standpoint today, I understand it's, it sounds simple, but in practice it's, it's not right. I think Rick Holland does a great job of this when he's on here of, of really, uh, bringing to the light, uh, bringing to light that you don't have to get it all done like right away. But if you set out a roadmap of 18 months and you start tackling that done or one by one by one by one, that's going to have a compounding you know, effect over time. Like instead of getting all worked up with the the how scary of a project or the the time and effort that's is going to take just tackling it step by step by step, it's going to have a great um, impact on, you know, your overall security posture. But with the principle of least privilege, like when's the last time and I and I spoke about this on a recent webinar that I did around BEC and you know adversaries love your SaaS applications, when's the last time you like did an audit of what is like hosted in G Suite or SharePoint, Um, limiting the access that, you know, in this case, it was an IT administrator. So they likely had, uh, you know, the necessary access and could see the lay of the land. But if I had compromised just a standard user, would that standard user still be able to see the likes of you know, network topology or how my, my PAM solution is, is implemented. So it's making sure that your users and entities have just enough privilege to be able to do their day to day, but not over, uh, over, um, providing permissions to these users that have no need to be looking at such detail. Cause this is just, again, going to put the burden back on the adversary, um, and slow down, um, their ability to, to expand further into an environment. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes it's the simple things that can
0: help prevent the most damage. Um, All right. Thanks, Brendan. I'm going to move on to the last topic now. Uh, So the last topic that we're going to be discussing today, it's going to be an attack that was labeled the largest ever cyber attack on Danish critical infrastructure. And this is an attack that occurred back in May of 2023, uh, but it was just reported recently. Uh, Basically, the Sandworm threat group, Uh, they launched a very large wave of highly targeted attacks against Danish energy companies. And uh, this attack took place in two waves. Uh, In the first wave, they targeted 16 companies and managed to compromise 11 of those. And then in the second wave, they targeted more companies with previously unseen cyber weapons and exploiting new vulnerabilities. So it was reported that they achieved access to these organizations by exploiting a new Zyxel Firewall Vulnerability, CVE-2023, two eight seven seven one uh colin i have a question for you can you tell us a little bit more about this vulnerability and what its threat is to organizations
2: yeah absolutely so you know this this was a vulnerability that got disclosed by zyxel um 9.8 severity so obviously you know that right off the bat should be ringing some alarm bells for people given it's a um networking appliance that's probably going to be on your edge and you The biggest thing here is that it was allowed for command injection. So essentially, you could do execute arbitrary code or commands on the firewall itself through the operating system, just through a sort of specially crafted UDP packet. Um, And what was happening is you'd send this UDP packet in, they'd execute a little bash shell uh, or bash script that would then call use curl or wget. Um, call down their payload um, and execute for a backdoor C2 implant onto the uh, system. So I, I mean, the threat here is pretty critical. We've all seen in the past year, a inordinate number of high severity vulnerabilities coming out for RCE for network edge appliances um, that either whether it's, whether it's RCE or whether it's like unauthenticated um, access to a management console, all of these are just allow access into your environment and particularly from a logging standpoint they're often very difficult to detect Um, these are often like local appliance logs and you're not going to have the you know logs forwarding to whatever your data lake or sim is that's sort of doing this aggregation Um, but when you're doing investigation uh, you're only going to really typically catch it a lot of organizations due to this logging disparity only typically catch it when they're using a valid account in the environment in some sort of anomalous way. So it can stay persistent. This threat can basically stay undetected because they're trying to track it back and they think, oh, it's just a valid account. You know, maybe it was phishing. Maybe it was creds got leaked and they just logged in through the PN portal, whatever it was, um, and they don't find the initial access. So it just persists there and they just walk back in. Um, we had an incident way, way back uh, related to espionage where that exact instance happened where... They compromised the local firewall through a management console, things thought they were contained and the local firewall accounts were the patch. It wasn't patched initially after that, they thought it was patched. It wasn't, and they just walked back in. So I think the the importance of, you know, patching and having a patching schedule and process for critical vulnerabilities for your network edge appliances is really, really the biggest key thing here because the, uh, the initial access is typically the the ease of it is very, very low. Um and the damage it can do is very, very high.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really good shout there, Colin, as well, especially on edge devices and vulnerabilities. You know, the vulnerability management is, is no easy, easy thing to do, but, you know, if it is a remote code execution, vulnerability it is something that your organization has and it is on the edge, so publicly accessible to the internet, even if you have controls in place, that absolutely needs to become like the first priority um, for your organization uh because you know look at the likes of uh some of the campaigns we've seen this year with clop and them targeting 3cx and move it if those are devices that are publicly accessible um you know a lot of what we saw in, in other vulnerabilities this year as well with these edge devices is Mass exploitation can happen and you can able to scale your operation via automation. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I'm just pointing my exploit to, I fingerprint what I'm looking for, point my exploit to it, and I could just recursively go through it and automate it. So uh, it's, it's not saying the exploits themselves are, are trivial, but once they are weaponized and POC is released, it's just a matter of time before you're going to start to see that impact. So definitely, definitely important to, you know, make sure your number one priority is anything RCE, unauthenticated, um, on an edge device.
2: Yeah. And Citrix Bleed is a great example of that recently once that POC was released, uh, everybody and their dog was exploiting it at mass scale. So really, really setting a whether if you have a vulnerability management program, that's great, but make sure look to see if you have a process or policy in place for escalating, you know, P ones, critical severity zero-day vulnerabilities and what that process looks like to get that moving you know if you have an on-call great but if you don't you might look to see what that process is for getting it patched as quickly as possible
1: yeah and and even on that too like for for organizations that uh maybe don't have uh, a system in place policy or or procedures in regards to vulnerability management you know I think it was last year and I can't even remember the number this year. It's probably in the hundreds of thousands, but I think last year was like 250,000 new CVEs were released. That is just absolutely ridiculous. Like I can't imagine having to try to manage that, but I think CISA's has done a really great job of cataloging all the known um, vulnerabilities that have been exploited in the wild. So if you're getting started there, I'm going to be focusing on that list and then cross referencing that with what I have in my environment and starting from there. Um, You know, that brings down, let's say there's a million CVEs out there. It brings it down to, I think the last time I looked, it was just around a thousand, if not a little bit more. You you drastically cut down on what it is that you need to be uh, really mindful of because you have evidence of this being weaponized by a threat actor. Yeah, definitely. This
0: whole discussion reminded me of something that we talked about in the Resmo report that was published about a month ago. Uh, which is we have to monitor external, public external infrastructure for any vulnerabilities and any threats because that's where typically threat actors are going after. So going back to the discussion on Sandworm, uh, Colin, I have a question for you. This type of attack targeting Danish critical infrastructure uh, in such a highly targeted attack, is this something common for Sandworm or is this maybe a deviation from their typical attacks and TTPs?
2: it's a bit of a bit of a mixed bag here so yes and no um obviously like sandworm historically has been very focused on um infrastructure critical infrastructure targets but the success of and the not only the success but like the um scalpel like precision of focusing on these uh this danish infrastructure that is a bit of a differentiating like characteristic from previous attacks um you know and and obviously we don't have the whole full story like there could have been and i'm sure there was a vast amount of reconnaissance done being done like sandworm is known for doing a, a vast amount of research on their targets um but it was so successful so fast across such a wide variety or wide amount of their infrastructure so that was a very, very big differentiator. But the, the fact that they're targeting critical infrastructure, I don't think is new. Um, you know, we've seen time and time again, uh, Ukraine, um, that area of the world sort of being as a testbed for operators like Sandworm or state actors to sort of test these, uh, you know, combinations of cyber and conventional warfare. Um, so but the, the Danish target is a bit, bit of a, a nuanced uh, approach here.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think if we look back at reports from earlier this year, there were a ton of attacks by Sandwarp targeting Ukraine relentlessly with a lot of wipers and destructive malware. So it's definitely an interesting one going after Danish critical infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But, so, <clears throat> question, another question for you, Colin. Uh, preventing attacks from these highly skilled APTs can be a very difficult task. Uh, what advice would you give our listeners to minimize the threats from such APTs?
2: I hate to be that guy who keeps repeating the same line over and over, but I know Brandon hit on it again. I've hit on it before. We both hit on it in a couple of different podcasts and webinars. Um, but really, doing the little things right uh, is the biggest thing here. You know, in this instance, it was the Zyxel vulnerability. Uh, you know, we just talked on that portion of you know vulnerability management programs are pretty cr- crucial, and patching schedules faster. or. Expedited patching schedules for those sort of high severity vulnerabilities. Threat actors I talked earlier about complexity and sophistication, but you know, the vast majority, even if it's a zero day, like the TTPs afterwards are pretty standard. Um, and even when it's not a zero day, they're it's not typically sophisticated. They're just doing the same thing everyone else is doing. So understanding what the threat landscape looks like for you. Um, and what your infrastructure and assets are, uh, asset, asset management is also a big, big part of this here. You can't defend what you don't know you have. Um, but then taking that, breaking it down into, okay, you know, these are, this is my industry. These are the, the organizations that are targeting me. Um, this is what the assets I have. These are the vulnerabilities I have. How can I manage, you know, my vulnerability program, vulnerability management program, my patching schedule, least privilege. Um, what is my access controls? You know, like I said, they walk in the front door. A lot of the time it's, it's not, you know, they're not comp cracking passwords. They're just buying an account online and walking in the front door. So like what kind of controls, you know, Brandon talked about MFA in place and having helped us robust, helped us policies, um, really focusing on doing all the little things, right, which is easy in practice or easy, easy, and you know, to say, but hard in practice oftentimes, but, um roadmapping that out and having a set schedule because it's easy to talk about it but once you get it on pen and paper it's much easier to execute
0: definitely all right excellent so let's close here uh, great podcast uh, today and I uh, just want to mention again that the threat research uh, team put out the threat spotlight covering the scattered spider attack attack analysis and that's going to be going live today as well as a blog and then we also released the threat spotlight last week covering proactive defenses to relieve IR teams. So definitely go check those out if you are ReliaQuest customers. Um, Right? And uh, I guess we'll close there. And uh, if you liked what you heard today and if you found it insightful, uh, definitely give us a like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Other than that, that is it for us today. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and enjoy the holiday season if you are in the US. And I'll see you next week.